Welcome to Sofa Security Chat Chat, episode 85 for March the 22nd, 2012. I'm Chester Wisniewski, and I'm going to mix things up. I've got a different guest this week. I'm welcome back John Shire. John is one of our sales engineers on the North American team and has a lot of experience in the field working with our customers and thought I would invite him on for his perspective on this week's topics. Welcome back, John. Hi, Chet. Thank you. We've got four main stories I want to talk about this week. It's been a couple of weeks since we had a chat chat. There was a lot of travel and RSA and all this other stuff. So I, I took a little break uh, from the chat chat, but we will get things back on track today. The first story that you expressed some interest in was around the, the news that the Federal Aviation Administration in the United States is, I don't want to say reconsidering their policies around electronic devices, but I guess historically the airlines had to kind of like independently test every type of device that they wanted to allow to operate on an aircraft on each of their aircraft and they're kind of consolidating that process it sounds like uh what's your take on the security of using your kindle your ipad etc you know below ten thousand feet where it's prohibited today i think that the the security implications uh, can be divided into a couple different areas we talked about this uh recently you and i and I think there's the security of, you know, the, let's say, the person in, in the sense that when you're using a device, you might not be as paying attention as much to, to your surroundings and what's going on. Um, also, it's just a, a projectile as well, right? And once, once you're in the cabin, so and a lot of, you know, I, I don't want to say conclusively that most accidents happen in, during takeoff and landing, but I think you can find that a lot of accidents do tend to happen during those, uh, those critical moments when the airplane's going up and down. So that, I think that's one part of it, and I think the other part of it is just the the, the distinct uh, security issues that come around uh, the the RF interference of the devices themselves. And I think what it comes down to is is a balance of both. And I think the FAA is, is sort of looking at that again and trying to make sense of it all. And, and I think you're right when it comes down to what we need to do. Just Testing all the devices is probably the best thing to do, but I think there's an enormous cost associated with that. Yeah, a lot of techies were quite resistant to um, the arguments that there is an actual electrical, you know, electromagnetic interference situation there. But I don't think that that's conclusively decided. And I mean, I, I understand your thing about physical objects flying around, but personally, I would rather get hit in the back of the head with a Kindle than a a, a hardcover book. If it, you know, really comes down to that part of it, but I'm, you know, I'd be worried about the electrical safety as well. And as much as so many of us in security spend on airplanes, uh, for a lot of us, it's a big part of our job is flying around. These topics are quite interesting. I think so too, and I think uh, part of the the issue is, is I think there's some a lot of confounding factors within that discussion discussion itself. You know, you'll find that uh, certain devices do give off or emit more RF than others. You'll find that some non-FCC compliant devices are really egregious compared to some other devices that are FCC compliant. So I think there's this vast spectrum of devices and there's also a vast spectrum of, or at least a much narrower spectrum, but still a lot of different aircraft out there that uh, that people fly on commercially that would need to be assessed you know, for their, their potential vulnerability to this RF stuff. So I think there's just... M- the, the truth probably like in everything else lies in the details and really analyzing the, the entire corpus of, you know, all the devices, all the airplanes, all the different scenarios. And, you know, there's some issues with the sum of the, you know, the total of all the, the RF interference from different devices. So it's a, it's a pretty big issue, but, uh, you know, I think it, it'd be interesting at least to, uh, to look into and, and allow us to do something, at least read, you know, uh, a Kindle or, or your iPad uh, while on takeoff and landing. Yeah, well, and it sounds like the FAA is being prudent, and and that's good news. And we had some interesting comments on the story that was posted on Naked Security, so people may want to check that out as well. 
uh, we got a little bit of insight into the Russian law enforcement system in the FSB this week and that they arrested a gang of uh, malware writers, hackers, criminals, thieves, whatever you may want to call them, behind a malware uh, family called Carburp. And for people that haven't heard of Carburp, it's very similar to things like Zeus or SpyEye in that it, it's largely designed to be a data-stealing piece of malware and, it, and targets a lot of bank accounts. Uh, it's flexible. It does other things as well, and it's been developed over time to become more sophisticated than the, that simplistic view. However, uh, largely it was used for banking fraud. What I found interesting is that the Russians would actually arrest someone for writing malware or stealing my banking information. And it turns out that I, maybe I'm incorrect about that. They're only interested in arresting people that may have committed fraud against other Russians. And that seems to be where these guys went wrong. Do you have any ideas? Like, how can we get the FSB and the Russian law enforcement interested in the rest of the hundreds, if not thousands of criminals that we're tracking, writing all this garbage all the time that simply decide to target North Americans or Western Europeans? I think we, if you look at it, 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 it happens to be uh, an election year in the U.S. right now and in several other countries. And the rhetoric that goes on during election seasons is really indicative, I think, to me of, of the same sort of problem within the malware industry, where when things are affecting your own people and there's a potential that, uh, you know, you might not be in office the next year, um, that is you know, somehow a bit more of a motivator for doing the right thing at home. Um, I, I don't know if there's that same sort of pressure. And uh, again, this is complete conjecture on my part, but I don't know if there's that, that same sort of pressure to do the right thing for, uh, you know, for foreign nationals and people that, that aren't connected to you. And Well, you know, we have seen malware before, right, that, that kind of indicated that these this type of a thing might be a concern for the criminals where they are intentionally avoiding targeting their own user base, so you know, within their neighborhood or their community or their state or whatever they're at, um, you know, to avoid this kind of thing. So it doesn't sound like it's anything new. You talked about it a bit at the last presentation we did. Yeah, for example, with the uh, configure with that piece of malware, there's there's an interesting function call that uh, occurs right at the beginning of uh, the, the flow diagram, if you will, and it's basically checking for a Ukrainian keyboard, and if it finds one, it actually basically exits at that point. So, uh, you know, again, an indication of potentially the origins of that piece of malware, but also an indication of maybe, you know, not wanting to uh, cause havoc in your own backyard. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, it, it does make sense. And we do know that, you know, international law enforcement is a gigantic challenge and the scale of cybercrime has put a burden on that system that's unlike anything we've seen before when we talk about cross-border crimes. Um, I guess it's only natural that these kind of things happen. But Hopefully, this is a bigger sign that the FSB is interested in charging cyber criminals as a whole. And if they start with the ones in their own backyard, that's just fine by me. There, there is a we haven't talked about it in the chat chat before, but everybody hopefully is aware of the most recent patch Tuesday patch for MS twelve zero two zero, and uh, it affects the RDP or Remote Display Protocol service in Windows. Fortunately, there is not any remote code execution yet, but exploit code has been released to the public it's now included in the metasploit toolkit and i, I just kind of want to get the word out there if you haven't heard this yet you really need to one not be exposing rdp to the open internet 
forever. And if you happen to have a, a need for it in the interim because you didn't know that you shouldn't be doing that, one thing you can do to mitigate the risk from that a bit is to enable authentication, which is available in Service Pack 3 for XP and newer. And if you enable authentication, it does at least mitigate against the current denial of service, which causes blue screens if your machine is scanned by this. Uh, I've seen some people on the uh, Twitterverse talking about you know having scanned the internet and finding over 5 million hosts that are vulnerable to this that are facing the internet right now. And you know what you face right now is an unexpected blue screen and potentially, I guess, a reboot. But if the attackers continue to investigate this vulnerability, we very well could see remote code execution in the near future, which would be quite a mess if we've ended up having you know another 5 million machines brought in through a worm. So we've been fortunate to not see worms. In fact, the last really big worm we saw, I guess, was what you were just talking about, John, the conficker worm. But this one has the potential to be very large. And of course, once it gets inside your organization, if RDP is enabled on your servers for internal management and things, uh, if this does turn into a worm, we could see that very same thing as Conficker, where people went, ah, I blocked that port on the internet. And in fact, once one copy gets in, it spreads like wildfire within your network. And we, we need to not forget the worm best practices of running firewalls inside of our network, personal firewalls on our machines, not turning them off and not enabling things to talk to anything they wish to when they are potentially at risk services like this. Yeah, I agree. And I think uh, this the, the other things that we need to start thinking about as well while we're patching our systems is, you know, what else do, might we have that has RDP enabled? So to give you an example, we use a, a cloud VM service, if you will. One of the things that we need to do is is patch all our VMs in the cloud as well. So, you know, all my test VMs that I have hosted at this uh, third party, some of them have RDP uh, running. So I, I need to make sure that those get patched. I need to make sure that my local VMs that I use for some local testing as well get patched. So it's not just, you know, your critical servers uh, and and your your desktops that need to be addressed. Obviously, it's it's the entire the entirety of, of all the machines that you actually touch and manage. Uh, and aside, I actually when I was looking into this vulnerability, I actually found a site called RDP Check, which is going to basically let you know whether you're at vulnerable or not for this threat. And uh, it's kind of interesting because when you go to this website, it actually asks, asks you to enter your email address and it'll start the test. So I'm actually going to send this to Sophos Labs to to uh, understand whether there is a, uh, you know, if, if this is a good or bad site. But there's people that might be already gathering intelligence around this to, uh, you know, to weaponize in the future. So who knows? Yeah, and that's a fantastic accidental segue, John, in that if you're interested in cloud security and you're in the Austin, Texas area, I will be doing a training session at B-Sides Austin, where we keep security weird, as they say, uh, in Austin, Texas on April 13th at B-Sides, but you're welcome to join us. Uh, we're a sponsor at B-Sides as well on April 12th and 13th in Austin. We're going to have a really good time. If you're in the area, can stop by and check it out, and I'll be doing training on cloud security. And the final story today I wanted to talk about briefly is Blue Cross Blue Shield of Tennessee was just fined $1.5 million under the high-tech legislation, which kind of goes hand-in-hand -hand with HIPAA. Um, it's the first fine we've seen under the high-tech bill. I, I guess this is an indicator, especially for healthcare organizations, that the Department of Housing and Human Services is taking these rules very seriously and is starting enforcement actions with both HIPAA and high tech were dormant for quite some time before this happened. But 
more importantly, it's the total cost and what you can do about these things. Uh, what happened was there was a closet full of hard disks that had recorded these phone calls to customer service agents where they say this call may be monitored for quality assurance purposes. And of course, in those conversations with Blue Cross agents, these people were telling them their social security numbers, their medical problems, and all kinds of personal information to verify their identities. These hard drives were unencrypted and thrown into a closet and then eventually were stolen. This incident supposedly cost Blue Cross so far another $17 million on top of the fine that has been imposed. You know, what are some best practices? I mean, we, we encrypt our laptops, right? I mean, we go, ah, this is portable. This is really scary. USB drives, these are portable. They're really scary. This was, you know, hard disks from desktop computers. Uh, is it time to start encrypting those? Yes, is the short answer. I think it, it's never a bad idea to uh, go with a little bit more security, specifically if you know you've already got an infrastructure that is taking advantage of of encryption for your laptops and for your CDs, DVDs, USBs, whatever the case may be. So, you know, if you've already invested in that infrastructure, I, I don't think it's um, from a technologically speaking, uh, it's not that tr it, it's not that onerous to actually get the desktops into the fold. Um, you know, it's probably going to cost you a little bit more in licensing, but it, you know. At the end of the day, is it uh, going to cost you more than than the potential fine and and the potential you know brand loyalty, if you will, that you're going to lose because of it? But uh, you also have to start thinking beyond the desktops as well, right? What what about the the data that might be getting going to the cloud? What about the data that might be going on your file shares to your servers, right? There are ways, there are technologies that can help you with that as well, making sure that before the data leaves for the cloud, it gets encrypted locally. Same thing with file shares. You know, before the data gets to the file share, uh, it gets encrypted locally and then sent encrypted across the wire and sits on the share in an encrypted state. So I think it's it's important that we we do that next step, which is, you know, the, right now the best practices, laptops, removal media, other types of media. But I think we should always do one more thing, and which is let's look at the cloud. Let's look at file share. Let's look at our desktops as well. Yeah, there's, a, there's quite a bit of advantage. I mean, people go, why would I encrypt my desktops? They're bolted to the table. And I mean, one, decommissioning. In this case, that's pretty much what happened, right? These hard drives were put into a closet. They were basically decommissioned and just hadn't been destroyed yet or whatever they had planned on doing with them. And decommissioning is so much easier when things are encrypted because you just delete the keys and you're done. And on top of that, it also helps with, you know, physical security. I mean, I, I so many companies I visit can walk in and put a USB stick into a machine and boot it up and steal the admin credentials from the Windows SAM database in all of 45 seconds. By encrypting that machine, you've suddenly completely thwarted that attack as well. So there's a lot of advantages to doing it, and, and it isn't that hard. And anybody who still thinks that encryption is slow needs to study up on the differences between asymmetric and symmetric encryption and look at some of the modern technologies, you know, the speed of our machines now and the new instruction sets that Intel's introduced and the newest core chips that assist with this. It's not a slow thing anymore. There's really good, no good reason not to do it. It should become your baseline, just like your firewall or your antivirus or other things like that. On that, I'm going to conclude Software Security Chat Chat episode 84. Five. Uh, thanks for joining us, John. No problem, Chet. My pleasure. And as always, for the latest security news, visit nakedsecurity.sophos.com. All of our podcasts are available at podcasts.sophos.com on iTunes or via RSS feed. And until next time, stay secure.